Alrighty, thanks, Steve. You know, Steve. Um, Steve's amazing. We uh, this morning we had a well, mini disaster. We we're meant to start kids church this week, and our family who are, are overseeing that sick this morning um, couldn't make it. Um, we also had um, Plum was meant to be doing sound and setting up live streaming for the first time. Family got sick, couldn't make it. One of our people who are hosting uh, got sick. So we might just pray for those people whose kids just all got sick this morning out of nowhere. But big thank you to Steve who managed to still get a kid's story out of nowhere for um, for us today because we love our kids and we want to make sure that um, they're just still getting something spoken into their lives. Father God, we just pray for those who, who come over sick this morning. Pray for the kids and the families. And we just ask that you bring healing uh, to all of them, that they would recover quickly. Um, yeah, we just thank you for each of them and their gifts and what you're using them for uh, in this family and beyond. In your name we pray. Amen. We're starting a sermon series in Esther today and often when I start a sermon series, I spend the first week just building a little bit of context, giving us an overview and then from next week we go Esther 1, blah, blah, blah and we take off in. So today, um, probably a little bit more teaching than preaching in that I just want to let us have an understanding of the book. And can I encourage you to uh, start reading through Esther? Um, you could read it again and again and again, because it only takes 30 minutes to read through the whole book. 25 if you're a skim reader, 35 if you're a thinker. So, uh, But it's, it's really short, and it, it's really worth doing as we start going through it. Like, don't just take what I say as, as gospel. Start looking at it. Start understanding it. So I want to throw a few things out there today that might um, irritate you, that might annoy you a bit, and hopefully it actually leads you to actually study the Scripture, challenge what you've believed, you've thought about the book of Esther before, and that way we're all going through it and we're all growing together. There's a couple of... Um, cheap thoughts that this series is going to get us. So if you fall asleep, I'll just let you know them so that when you're talking to someone down the street and they say, what did you talk about? You can just go, ah, oh, duh, 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 and no one will know. One of the big themes of this book is who's on the throne? Is it you or is it God or is it someone else? Another really important part, and this is one of my favorite things that we see, and we don't just see it in Esther, but we see it right through the Bible that God uses imperfect people for his perfect plan. And that's encouraging for me because I'm far from perfect. Just ask Kezia. So we start this series and we need to look at the context. And um, the book's set in the Persian Empire, which would be today modern-day Iran. And the book was written by an unknown Jew in Persia somewhere between 400 and 450 BC. The events that take place that are recorded probably happened around... Um, 483 to 464 BC. And so the so what's happened is the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrians and the southern kingdom were then conquered by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians. This is the stuff I love, like castles, fighting, all that good gory blood and gut stuff. That's why I say you've got to watch those TV shows because you get biblical context. So the Persians have taken over. They're in control. They're ruling. And they use this tactic that is a little bit different, but they conquer an area, and what they do is they deport all the uh, politically powerful people, all the people who have money. They just get rid of them, and they keep the poor people, the locals who, who don't, have, you know, don't have as much say, don't have as much wealth, 
And what they hope is by ripping them apart from their homes, their religion and their heritage, that simply what's going to happen is within a generation or two, they would simply merge into the Persian culture and forget about their heritage. And that way they would grow their clan, they would grow their influence and they'd have a larger group of people that would then become a part of their kingdom. And this is exactly what has happened to the Jews in Esther's day in the Persian Empire. Many of them didn't bother returning to the promised land when they had the chance to do so because they kind of had just merged, had assimilated, had just become part of this Persian Empire and all of a sudden they liked the way things rolled in that world and it was just, you know how we none of us like change? Well, they'd grown up and they'd just lived this way and so when they had an opportunity, um, when God was prompting them to go back to the promised land and go back to all their Jewish heritage and to rebuild the temple, all those things, some of them went but lots of them just stayed. We see around this greater time period, and it's important for the context of this story, um, that more than once God made a way for the Jewish people to leave Persia, head back home to Jerusalem. And the first one of these happened under the rule of a king named Cyrus around 537-38 BC. And we pick up that story in the book of Ezra 1 verses 1 to 4. If you get your Bibles, you can open up. I'm going to read it now. In the first year of... Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. Just, just, just take that in for one second. A pagan king, the Lord moved his heart. To make a proclamation throughout the realm and also to put it in writing. It's one thing to speak it. It's another thing to write it down and make it a decree. This is what... Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with all free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. It blows my mind. I find this awesome. God's using an ungodly king to return his chosen people to their land, to prepare them for the coming Messiah about 400, 500 years before the Messiah. And so an early take home for us is we might be worried about tomorrow, we might be worried about a future, but God has a plan and he will make that plan happen and he will use people regardless of their theological beliefs, regardless of where they stand, even regardless of direction, because God's plan, his sovereignty will take place. He wins. There's some comfort for us in that. And so about 50,000 Jews returned less than 60 years after the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom. And this kind of gives us an idea of how many Jews lived in the area, 50,000, straight back. In Ezra 7, we see there's a second return from exile. Ezra 7 verses 11 to 13 shows us that a different king, whose name's hard to pronounce, again says, hey, if people want to go, the temple's been built, go, go sort this out. And this time... About 6,000, it says 1,500 men returned, wives and children with them, so about 6,000. Also, then later we see in Nehemiah, there's a third return from exile in about 444 BC. 
And Nehemiah 2 verse 4, Nehemiah said, The king said to him, What is it you want? Isn't that a good question? What is it you want? Have you ever considered in your life, what is it you want? Imagine if you're having a conversation with our king. And he said, what is it you want? It's a great condition of where our heart is, how we respond. But here the king says to Nehemiah, what is it you want? So then I prayed to the God in heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. What we see here is for almost a hundred years, any Jew living in the old Babylonians, now Medo-Persian Empire, could have returned to the promised land if they had desired, without fear of persecution, without fear of death. And the truth is, like there was just something of revival or something cool happening back in the promised land. There was a buzz. It was like the, the spot on the real estate game. All of a sudden, the temple's being rebuilt. The priesthood was being reinstituted and God was being worshipped again at Jerusalem, which was what the Old Testament commanded. It's back to good. You know how like everyone in church is always like, I remember the good old days. I just want to get back to there. This was their opportunity. We don't do that now because we want to look forward into all God's got. But this was their chance to go back to, to that place of, of paradise, that place that they really wanted. You know, and it's really interesting because some went back. And it's really relevant to our story because I guess the two heroes of this book, Esther and Mordecai, didn't go. They voluntarily cut themselves off from the divinely appointed way back and way to worship and serve God. And I guess a comparison of that, when I think about it in our context, is it might be like the person who states that they love God, but they never connect into local church life. They're never in Christian community. They're never praying. They're never serving. They're not even really reading their Bible. They've got plenty of chances, but no uptake in, in anything forward moving in their faith. You wouldn't necessarily say that person isn't a Christian, but you'd definitely be able to say that they're not living God's best plan for their life. Are you saying that about Esther and Mordecai, Jacob? Yes. And I don't want to upset too many people because a lot of people see Esther just as this hero of faith and this amazing girl, and we'll talk about her in a minute, but maybe we just need to take another look. Because Esther and Mordecai are commonly gifted this tick for spirituality and faith that maybe they haven't actually earned. But that's the context around the Persian Empire and we'll head further into the people profiles around Esther and Mordecai in a minute. But this book is about Esther and it's a book that doesn't actually mention God. Some commentators, as you start doing your, your sermon series prep, some commentators suggest don't go into that. Don't, don't preach Esther. It's a, hard, it's a hard one to preach. So what do we do? We preach Esther. Esther is described in the book as a Jewish queen of a Persian pagan king. Now he's got a really, he's got two names. One that's hard to pronounce, one that's easy to pronounce. I'm going to lean on the one that's easy to pronounce because we all know how good my pronunciation skills are. So you could call him Ahasuerus or something like that. Or we could call him Xerxes. He's got two names. Xerxes is easy. You will hear me call him Xerxes from here on in. He reigns between 
496 to 465 BC. That's a 21-year reign. It's good going. You know, we've got ScoMo for another three at least, which I'm pleased about. But this is not a political stance, so we won't go into that right now. But 21-year reign. That's a good stint. Now, there's a couple of big moments through the book of Esther, and I want to highlight a couple of them briefly this morning. We're going to lean into all of those over the next 10 or 12 weeks. But there's some um, things that we need to talk about that just sort of frame the story. And if I highlight them, then you can go and read them and you can um, really focus in on them. The first and really important part in this story is the old queen says no. The story goes that Xerxes um, is here looking for a new wife, because the old queen, his previous queen, had said no. And so the foundation chapters to the story come from chapters 1 and 2, where as we read it, we see that Esther becomes the new queen. So the king needs a new queen, and the question is, well, why does he need a new queen? We find that out in chapter 1. Esther 1 verse 12 says, But when the attendees uh, delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti, the old queen, imagine being referred to as the old queen, not fun, refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. See, what happens is the king, King Xerxes, really wanted people to like him. And he threw this like massive party. And he had all the money in the world. He had all he had this massive personal guard of soldiers, the best soldiers in the world. And he wanted them to like him. We all want people to like us, right? He had the resources, so he threw a party. And threw a party that was so big, it went for six months. Now that's my kind of king, hey. So it's just like, open bar, do what you want, don't have to get to work, just come along and we're going to party. Now you would like a king or a boss who was just like, hey, we're not going to worry about work for the next six months, it's, just, it's, it's holiday time, it's party time, this is awesome. And so what happens is they're having a big, long six-month party and then we'll look into this more next week. So stay tuned, next week's going to be lots of fun. And him and his soldiers and workers are all drunk and it's late in the party of, you know, maybe five months in. A while into this party and they're drunk and he's sitting around on his throne and his guys are there and they're talking and you know what guys are like when they're talking and they're drunk. Nothing good comes out of it. And he has this idea, right? I know, we need a bit of entertainment. So you can imagine the talk going on with the boys and he goes, oh, my queen, she's beautiful. I'm going to get her to parade. I didn't make, I'm not making this up. You can read it. I'm going to get her to parade, either nude or semi-nude, maybe in lingerie, maybe nude, it's unclear, in front of the boys. So he gets his attendees, his henchmen, to go and summon the queen, who's somewhere in the harem, just, hey, the king wants you to come and parade in front of the drunk guys. Surprise, surprise, she says, no. Well done, queen. Tick. And the king, in all his drunk wisdom... He's angry. The king was really crazy as he banishes her. You know, she refuses to enter the king's presence. So what does he do? He banishes her from his presence. It's like, for her, it's like, this is awesome. But she's gone, you know. And it's quite interesting. He didn't put her to death. But she said no. She made a statement. And he said, well, I'm done with you. So then after a period of time, he banishes her. He's lonely. And again, with some of potentially young, maybe drunk guys, some wise counsel, good idea. If you want wise counsel, just get a heap of young, drunk guys around, inexperienced guys. They'll have great ideas. And he says, how am I going to fill this loneliness that I've got? 
And they go, well, you need another queen. And so what happens, and it's in the Bible, they hold season one of The Bachelor. Here's the guy looking for a new queen. And so they go and get hundreds of beautiful virgins. And then one by one, it's horrible. It's an X-rated version of The Bachelor. The king has many young girls and he tests them out over a period of time. And long story short, Esther gets the rose. She's the winner of the inaugural season of The Bachelor. You can watch on any good streaming service. And it's a big moan in the story because out of all these beautiful and wonderful girls through horrible, immoral things, Esther becomes queen. It says in Esther 2 verse 16 to 17, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women and she found his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It's a big moment. It's a big moment and through absolute craziness, absolute horrible um, situation, the search for a new queen, the way it was done and the women that would have been defiled, God still managed to put in place who he needs in place so that later he can go on and save his people. Another big moment in the story is that the new queen's uncle has a hero moment. We're going to see in the coming weeks that Esther's uncle Mordecai saved the king's life and that puts him in a position later on many years down the track to be in a position to do something important for God's purpose and plan. And it's important because later on there's a bad dude. We meet the villain of the story and his name's Haman. It's a great name for a bad man, isn't it? Haman is going to attempt... Jewish genocide. He's going to attempt Jewish mass murder. And Haman um, is stopped by Mordecai who saves the king's life. And another running theme that we're going to um, see and it's big news is that there's this clash of work colleagues. Mordecai and also Haman the bad dude. They're both working for the king. They're part of, I guess, what you'd call um, the public service to the king. And Haman gets the promotion that Mordecai believes he deserves Another take-home from us is that jealousy and envy and rivalry don't build good team culture. But we're going to see Mordecai ends up disrespecting Haman. Haman's going to want to kill Mordecai. Haman wants to kill all the Jewish people just to justify killing Mordecai. Do you know, it's amazing how far we will go. And I say we because sometimes we're just like Haman. It's amazing where we will go sometimes if we don't do what God says. And he says, vengeance is mine. And we try to take it on our own. But in Esther 3 verses 5 and 6, we see when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learnt that who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And I felt God say this morning as I was running over this, do you know what? we do what you and i do individually doesn't just affect us but it affects so many people that we're connected to in community you know mordecai's stubbornness for refusing to show respect to someone who uh, according to the day he should have showed respect for nearly got his whole people killed it's a challenge for you and it's a challenge for me what are we doing now that's affecting the lives of others good and bad 
We're going to later walk through how um, Mordecai actually wins this battle against Haman. And then there's a huge moment in the book as Esther's faced with a choice. And I just can't wait to preach that. Mordecai asks her to help the Jewish people. And, and to this point, Esther hasn't identified with Jewish people. She hasn't lived in community with Jewish people. She's basically fully away from it. And she has a moment where she has to decide, am I going to walk into faith or am I going to walk away from faith? Esther 4 verse 13 to 14 says, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not of yourself. Oh, lift. I'm going to read that one later. I've mucked that up. But we, it comes to this point where she has a choice and it says for such a time as this. And the truth is, and, and I'm looking forward to preaching that, each of us have choices every day that God's graced us for, that God's placed us in to make a, a decision and a choice to move forward in the things of God, to run back to God because he's always pursuing us or to walk away. Another big moment comes is as Esther's um, stepped up, as she's decided I'm going to pursue this, I'm going to save my people, she's got this plan. And all of a sudden you see these two plans that are clashing and colliding. And how often in our lives do we have a plan? Someone else has got a plan. And ultimately we see them impact and shape each other. You've got the evil guy Haman. He's planning Mordecai's death. He's planning the uh, assassination of the entire Jewish race. And you see Esther, she's got a plan to save her people. And what happens is in this unique and crazy situation, Esther's inviting uh, the king, her husband, who she doesn't see very often because he's busy uh, all sorts of other activities, um, invites both him and, and Haman to dinner. They have not one dinner, they have two dinners. And what we see in Esther 7 verse 6 to 8, the culmination, Esther comes to the point and the king's going, hang on, what do you want? What do you want, Esther? What's going on? You've, you haven't seen you for a while, but all of a sudden you've invited me not one but two dinners. And Esther says that Haman, her advisory, is trying to kill her. And it's amazing how we see the hand of God work, that not only does Haman have a plan to kill Mordecai, Haman ends up dying on the very thing that he was building um, to hurt God's people. God ends up using that. Um, to save God's people. In chapter 8, we're going to see that Mordecai becomes honoured. Instead of being executed, he becomes honoured. In Esther chapter 9, we're going to see the enemies of God's people destroyed. And then in Esther um, 9, later on, we're going to see that they end up having a feast to celebrate the saving of the Jewish people. We're going to learn that some of these events over the next few weeks, we're going to see um, that they're important for our lives and we're going to see the people in them. And I want to give us a quick Look at the two main characters, Esther and Mordecai. If I had more time, we'd do a profile on Xerxes and also evil Haman. But firstly, let's look at Esther. If I was asked to describe Esther, I'd say this. Esther was a backslidden Jew who was not a dedicated follower of God. It's probably pretty harsh. But she isn't really like we study people in the Bible and we go, that's an example of someone we should follow. Esther's not that. You know, she's maybe one of those people you go, actually, there's an example of someone we should be not like. You might say that's harsh. Maybe. It's going to start to make a lot more sense as we unpack it. But she pursues relationship with a king who was a pagan worshipper. 
She pursues relationship with this evil and murderous man. She wanted the king and we know this because she made sure she pleased the man who was looking after all the young girls who were gathered for that bachelor season one. She also hid the fact that she was a Jew. She didn't worry about what she ate, unlike other Jewish people who were following God in her day, such as Daniel. We know Daniel got himself in a situation and he had an opportunity to you know, work towards pleasing the king, but he refused to eat the food that was offered to him. Rather, he ate how his people would eat. Esther wasn't like that. It's likely that she started worshipping pagan gods, hand in hand with her king, her boyfriend. Because if she didn't, it would have been quite strange. This is the queen. What's she not doing worshipping with the king? So when you stand her against other people of her day, in her culture and in her context, um, as a godly example, she falls horribly short. We could compare her to Ezra. We could compare her to Daniel. History tells us the Jews had their own little communities all over the Persian Empire. That's why Haman was able to issue a decree to have them killed because he knew where they were. He knew how they worshipped. They, they knew how they lived. Just as Pope you said, could you identify a Christian? In that day, there were Jews and while they weren't moving back to Jerusalem, they lived a certain way and you could identify them by the way they acted. Not so Esther. Perhaps the nicest thing I could say for Esther is she was a lukewarm Jew by birthright who through fear for her own well-being found eventually a desire to turn towards God and God's people. She was born a Jew, so she most naturally knew about God. She knew about the covenants of God um, that he'd made with his people. And she's got a level of boldness. I'll give her that. She's brave, yet her faith was lukewarm at best. Not overall the greatest example of a faith-filled person. You know, and the same could be said of Mordecai. In all honesty, as I spent more and more time in this book, I hate him. I did not like him at all. How could I describe Mordecai? He's a self-focused, cowardice man. They're the worst type. A lukewarm Jew who wasn't living God's best plan for his life, not a passionate follower of God, not somebody sold out for God's purpose. He also isn't a great example for us to follow. Maybe our takeout from looking at him will end up being, don't be like Mordecai. See, if Mordecai was a God-following Jew, he wouldn't have told Esther to keep quiet about her being a Jew. People usually assume that maybe her life would be in danger if she lived like a Jew, but that's rubbish. Because in those days, Ezra was trained as a scribe in the Jewish community in Babylon and earning the king's favour. Cyrus had allowed people to go back. There was like this sympathetic appreciation for the Jewish people by the leaders in that time. Jewish persecution was at an all-time low. And maybe Mordecai's telling her to hide it for a politically, you know, calculation. You know, he's working his way up. He doesn't want to rock the boat. He doesn't want her to rock the boat. She's got a chance to be the queen. Maybe she just needs to merge into this pagan culture and just hide that. Here's what gets me. Mordecai was Esther's legal guardian. Uncle, but legal guardian. So he, was, he raised her. He was her father figure. And he either gave her up... For this virgin to be dear virgin, season one of The Bachelor. He either gave her up willingly, or at the very least, he did not argue. He did not say no. He 
He didn't say, no, you can't have my ultimately daughter to go and, and for the king to do as he pleases. He didn't argue. He gave her away. What a coward. No, I'm a, I'm a dad of three girls. Like, you would have to kill me. And I mean that for me to give my girls away to something like that. Not much of a father figure, right? It, it, it genuinely upsets me when I look at the ease. And it says later on that he had some concerns. But just wait. Because all of a sudden, Mordecai started the clash with Haman. Or at least he was the fuse that escalated this crap, this clash to be so strong that uh, Haman wants to kill him. Because bowing, he refused to bow out of respect. Bowing wasn't a form of worship in this situation. It's not like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It's not like that. Bowing was this simple respect for their culture. Mordecai simply didn't like the guy. All of a sudden, the guy's got his job that he wanted. Maybe he's jealous. Maybe he wanted the position. Um, They were both the king's public service. And Mordecai had saved the king's life. And so he thought, well, I should have that job as to I see. And Haman gets it. So Mordecai cracks it. He didn't stand up and challenge giving Esther away to the Bachelor Season 1 to the Virgin Sex Contest. But he stands up when it's about his personal pride and position. It's the truth. He obviously cared more for himself and his position than he did for the adopted daughter that he was meant to be looking after. It's real, isn't it? Like it's confronting. Mordecai keeps his Jewish heritage a complete secret until it suits him. Because until the feud with Haman started, he only told them he was a Jew when his co-workers asked him why he wouldn't bow to Haman. So it's like he was using his Jewish heritage as an excuse. Wasn't living for God, wasn't standing for God, wasn't um, following the, the, the things that they were doing. But all of a sudden, oh, hang on, I don't want to bow. Oh, I might just use that as an excuse. Coward. Selfish. There's a challenge for me as I look at Mordecai in that context and I go, well, do I sometimes use my faith as a convenience? It's an interesting thought. So Mordecai was a lukewarm Jew. He raised Esther as a lukewarm Jew. He knew of God. He knew of the covenants. He chose not to lean into them, not to pursue God. And so the question you might be formulating is, well, Jacob, if we're studying a book of the Bible for the next 12 weeks that not only doesn't mention God, but follows the journey of two people who were far from godly, who don't pray, who don't fellowship with God's people, who actively live for their own plans and purpose and pursue personal glory, well, what's in the book for us? Good question. Over the coming weeks, amongst so much chaos and so much self-centered behavior, we're going to learn this about God. We're going to learn that God's plan involves less than perfect people. It's not an excuse for us to go and live how we want. But it's good news for you and I. And it's a reminder of the need for a saviour. Because all of us are imperfect people in need of Jesus to come and be our saviour, to come and be our righteousness. We're going to learn that God's promises are good. And that's great news. And we're going to learn that God's in control, even amongst craziness, amongst chaos. And he always has a plan. But I also believe that we're going to be challenged over and over to ask ourselves, 
Whose glory are we living for? And who's on the throne? And so my challenge for each of us this week is as we, as we launch into Esther next week, starting in chapter 1, is start reading through it. You know, maybe throw out the, the cute little pretty um, stories that we've heard before of this and let's just really go nuts and bolts into this and look through it and not skip over the gory, crazy and pornographic type sections and actually go and see what God's doing through each of those moments and learn how God can change us. You know, this will challenge us on sexual purity. This will challenge us on, you know, building our own castles, building our own kingdoms. This will challenge us on... You know, are we living lukewarm faith? We're going to go on a pretty cool journey. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more song and we're done this morning. So the music team want to come back up. Study chapter one this week and ask the question, who's on the throne? Whose glory are we living for? Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you've led us to this book. Lord, and we just pray that as, as we start going through it, you're going to peel back layers of our lives. You're going to invite us to know you more. You're going to invite us to understand that you are sovereign, that we need Jesus as a better king. Lord, that we need you on the throne. And Lord, that we need to live for your glory. God, I pray for each and every person this week that as they open their Bibles and they start reading through Esther, that you would speak to them, that you would encourage them, that while each and every one of us might be imperfect, that you want to work your plan through us. And Lord, that nothing's going to stop your plan. Nothing's going to stop the promises that you have for us, through us and for all people. Lord, we just give you this moment just say have your way in our hearts and lives. Let's stand and sing one last song.